Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, today we have some unfinished business to tend to. You may recall that throughout 2020, we broke the Biden tax platform down plank by plank throughout many different episodes. We had Tom West, who was now a deputy assistant secretary in the Biden Treasury, talking about the book-based minimum tax proposal. We had Danielle Rolfus, who was international tax counsel in the Obama Treasury, talking about Biden's proposal around guilty changes. And if you missed those, just go back to catching up on Capitol Hill season one. They are there. But one Biden proposal that we did not talk about, and we are getting many questions about now, is the offshoring tax penalty proposal. Now, listen. It wasn't an oversight that we did not address it before today. It was more based upon the simple reality that we just didn't know how exactly it would operate. And to be honest, we still don't. But hey, that's never stopped us before. So today we talk about the Biden proposal designed to impose a penalty on companies who offshore jobs. We're joined by our friends Jen Acuna and Tom Stout as we do our best to shed some light on the Biden campaign proposal. Here is the way the proposal was described in the then candidate Joe Biden's Buy America fact sheet. Quote, this penalty is specifically aimed at those who offshore manufacturing and service jobs to foreign nations in order to sell goods or provide services back to the American market. Biden will establish a 28% corporate tax rate plus a 10% offshoring penalty surtax on profits of any production by a United States company overseas for sales back to the United States. Companies will pay a 30.8% tax rate on any such profits. Biden's offshoring penalty surtax will also apply to call centers or services by an American company located overseas, but serving the United States where jobs could have been located in the United States, unquote. That was a mouthful, but that's really all we know so far about this offshoring penalty proposal. So, Jen, first question for you, and it's a hard one. I'm just warning you now, based upon what I just read, how do you think this proposal could work mechanically? This is a funny proposal because it has elements of past proposals. I mean, you could see a simple way of doing this would be just to have, you know, it's identified as a surtax. You can say, with respect to this class of income, the headline corporate rate will apply, and there will be an additional surtax on that rate, right? And just leave it all to Treasury to fill in the gaps and write the rules. So you can easily see something like that, although it looks like it exclusively applies to U.S. companies, and it applies to offshore operations. So we know that there is already a mechanism in place in the current code to deal with that type of income, even if not this specific category of income, which is the guilty. So you could easily say maybe eliminate the 250 deduction with respect to income related to the offshoring of jobs or more likely what would be a lot easier to do from a drafting perspective, which just to use sales and services income as a proxy for jobs outsourcing, right? Because there's a specific reference to jobs that have been outsourced. You can easily use a proxy for that, which is income related to sales and services back into the United States. And just assume that that translated into the erosion of jobs to overseas markets. Those are really the two possible approaches to this type of a provision. If it's not going to be a standalone 
provision on its own, but there are existing mechanisms in the code now that can be piggybacked off of to implement this type of a proposal. Okay, so let me see if I can follow all that. I think what I heard you say is most of the income we're talking about here, right, and it does specifically say the income from people that are selling goods and services back into the U.S., would currently be in the guilty bucket. I think that's right. So mostly, so which is today taxed at 10.5%, obviously subject to lots of calculations, et cetera, but broadly 10.5% under the Biden proposal, 21%. We would take it out of that 21% bucket, put it in mechanically, as you said, by either denying the deduction or otherwise into the 28% headline rate bucket, and then add 10% of the 28, that's how we get to 30.8%. So then if all that's true, we're pulling this income out of guilty and pushing it into this headline rate plus this penalty. But I think what I didn't hear you say is that what we're actually trying to do is count actual jobs that have been offshore, right? That's not really plausible. We're using these other things you talked about as a proxy for activity that could be perceived to offshore jobs. Is that right? I think that's right. Just from a practical perspective, tracing is always frowned upon because it's extremely hard to do. It's a significant burden on the taxpayer, and it's really hard to administer from a government perspective. So that seems like the most sound route. Got it. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, it'd be really hard to identify an offshore job specifically and count them. So we're working within the system as we know it to try and find a proxy for that. Okay. Tom, does that sound right to you? Is question one. And then follow-on question for you to think about is how does this proposal then fit into the broader Biden plan, especially the international plan? It sounds right. One of the major campaign themes that Biden had was creation of jobs in the U.S. And corollary of that is reducing incentives to move jobs offshore. And tax is certainly part of that. So the idea here seems to be to increase the rate of tax on foreign earnings with respect to some kind of income, probably income with respect to sales back into the U.S., fits well with his jobs theme, the idea being it seems at the end to increase the rate of tax on that element of profit, whatever that is exactly, above the U.S. rate on domestic production in order to remove any incentives. And he's got the flip side of that is he's also talking about providing an investment tax credit for production, increasing the capital investment in the U.S. It's sort of working both ways and fitting right into his jobs theme. That's an interesting point. So we've got two sides of this coin, the offshoring and the onshoring. We're talking about the offshoring here, which is a penalty, 10%. We've got a 10% benefit for those who onshore jobs. And I imagine there, as you suggest, we're not counting actual jobs there either. We're just using CapEx in that case, probably as our proxy for onshoring. Coming back then, Tom, so I think what you're saying is we look at this bucket of income inside guilty. Somehow we're defining a piece of that as subject to this higher rate, however that has to be defined. And it's going to be one of the challenges to do that. But I think one of the things that Jen mentioned and you alluded to as well is the proposal specifically says it applies to United States companies. That means a foreign company selling goods and services into the U.S., they're probably out from under this. Is that a fair reading? You know, as much detail as we have so far, and yeah, that potentially creates some competitive problems and some incentives for inversions or for foreign companies acquiring U.S. companies to avoid this. If the delta here, the tax is large enough to create that kind of an incentive. Right. It's an interesting point. And the part I didn't read, that if we had gone on further from that document, the Buy America fact sheet, Biden goes on to say, or his campaign went on to say, that they also would basically backstop this with anti-inversion legislation as well. So that sort of backs up what you just said there, Tom. Right. Yep. Okay, Jen. 
Look, you have some experience with other anti-round-tripping proposals. We haven't really used that term here yet, so maybe you can just talk about what we mean by anti-round-tripping and why this seems like that. But I'm thinking of the ones that during your time on Capitol Hill, I think there was in the 2014 tax reform proposal out of the House that you were involved in. There was an anti-round-tripping proposal. The guilty itself that you were very involved with during your time at the Senate Finance Committee, and even to a certain extent, another one that you'd probably like to forget that you worked on with the BAT. Uh, How could we ever forget the (laughs) the border-adjusted tax of the BAT? But here's one thing about all those three proposals. None of them became law. Now, the guilty became law, but not the anti-round-tripping proposal. With your experience in working in those three things, why? Why do you think that anti-round-tripping is so hard to do from a tax policy and a legislative drafting point of view? Well, you know, let's not take for granted that the guilty, when publicly released, did not include a round-tripping proposal. And for good reason. We had Camp Option C did have a round-tripping proposal. Round-tripping, it's commonly used to reference income that's pushed out of the U.S. operations offshore in order to take advantage of the benefit of a lower rate, but still servicing the U.S. market. So it sounds familiar, right? It sounds kind of like FDII, but the inverse of FDII. But Option C had one of those, that 2014 proposal that you mentioned, John, And what it did was it was not a reasonable guess. You know, my answer before about eliminating the 250 deduction, that's exactly how it was drafted. What we did was went in, had guilty income and said, except with respect to the 250 deduction, no deduction for income related to sales and services back in the U.S. So there was that carving out of the preferential rate that distinguished the guilty rate from the corporate tax rate. So that was how round tripping was addressed then. And it was not a detailed analysis, right? I mean, it was a very brief exception to the general guilty rule to that 250 deduction. Now, what makes this a little trickier is that surtax on top of it. But as you were asking, the guilty round tripping rule, that one round tripping rule did not make it into the guilty. It was not part of the chairman's mark. It was eliminated. It was originally behind the scenes it was in there until a few weeks before the Senate finance markup. So we can all guess why that happened, but there was a significant amount of political pushback because of the precise reasons that Tom mentioned. This anti-competitive nature of the proposal, because it was directed through the guilty, it only affected U.S. companies. It had no impact on their foreign competitors. And there was a real concern among tax policymakers at that time to avoid having a provision that did that. I won't ask you to the number because it's been several years, Chen. But in terms of revenue, I mean, was this a meaningful number, anti-round tripping? Did this raise a substantial amount or was it a modest amount when you scored the actual revenue effects of having an anti-round tripping proposal? Well, you know, that still remains a mystery with all of the runs that were taking place with respect to the guilty and the QBI and the different rates. It was really hard to isolate that particular behavioral response because most of that particular provision, what would influence it would be, you know, a lot of future activity as well as current activity. But it was more of the future forecasting that drove that revenue estimate. So it's just unclear. I mean, it just depends on how broad or how narrow that exclusion from the 250 deduction is drafted. Right. So we don't know. It's one of the fascinating things that we would have to look forward to on this proposal. First of all, how do we define what the so-called you know, bad activity is, number one? Number two, how much revenue does that raise? And in the end, because of the political and the policy concerns you both talked about, 
is it worth it in the end? I imagine would raise some revenue. The question is, is oh, it worth it? Definitely raises a significant amount of revenue. I, I don't think that's a outlandish guesstimate. Significant. Interesting. Okay, Tom, back to you. So look, we're having this whole debate about adding this complexity into the tax system to prevent the offshoring of jobs. Great. Okay. It's a reasonable policy debate to have. But here's a separate question and a very practical one. Do you think this is the kind of thing that actually would prevent the offshoring of jobs if that's the real goal? Oh, well, the question is preventing. The clear answer is no. The main reasons for offshoring usually have to do with labor costs and regulation and all sorts of other things. And, you know, this is relatively small and that tax is relatively small. And and this is relatively small compared to some of the other international changes that Biden's talking about, like doubling the guilty rate and applying it on a country by country basis and eliminating QBI. This is really small potatoes compared to that it's also going to be, it seems to me, you know, for all other reasons Jen's alluding to, you know, very hard to apply. What's the base of this? Is it going to be all profits with respect to sales back into the U.S. or only with respect to, you know, the foreign value added? And if it's only the foreign value added, then what do you do about the IP and hard components that go into that production as well? It's, it's hard to figure out what the base is and how to measure it. So it seems to me it's going to be hard to administer and hard for the companies to apply. So how effective it's going to be, I don't know. It seems to me it's maybe a bridge too far in terms of encouraging jobs in the U.S. Tom, I can't believe you just said out loud that not every business decision is made around taxes. You know, the tax bar is going to revoke your license. Uh, so we'll just keep this between ourselves. But I think it's a very fair point, right? Like We like to pretend that tax drives all these decisions. In the end, there are so many factors, as you said, labor costs, the local laws, IP protections. I mean, there's so many things that really drive these costs. Yes, after tax return is a real thing. But how meaningful it is in this case is probably not at the top of the list, maybe not even in the middle of the list in terms of decisions about where jobs go. All right. This may may be more about the optics than anything else. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's one of those things. You can see the political appeal of saying we're going to penalize companies at offshore jobs. But it's one of those things that sounds great, really hard to do for all the reasons we've talked about in terms of defining, et cetera. All right, Jen, we've got so many questions with so few answers. So here's my question. When do you think we'll actually learn more about what Biden is talking about here? Oh, my goodness. That is the $200 billion question, right? Or, Or whatever it could possibly cost. Some people have been speculating that there could be some more analysis in the Treasury Green Book that is released by the Biden administration. Now, we don't know what the timing is going to be on that. But, you know, it's interesting because there is some detail in the proposal. It's just unclear whether the Green Book would provide additional detail on exactly how mechanically it would work. Green Book proposals tend to be somewhat detailed, but don't really provide kind of the nuts and bolts of how a provision works or how an enforcement mechanism is intended to operate. My best guess is maybe some additional information in the Green Book, but all bets are really going to be before markup, right? When you actually see legislative text, I mean, that's when I would expect to see the real details that go beyond the two, three sentences that we've already seen. Yeah. As you talk about it, you know, you sort of deflated my balloon here because (laughs) I was thinking the Green Book would be the moment we would get a lot more detail. But A, will it even be in the Green Book? B, if it is, when will that be? I mean, best guess is spring, but who knows? We're not even sure there's going to be a Green Book. But I guess lastly, maybe most importantly, 
it could be in there and still not tell us much more than we know. If I think back to the last Green Book we saw, which was during the Obama administration, the way these proposals typically are portrayed is here's current law. There's a paragraph on that. Here's reason for change, a paragraph explaining the reason for change, which won't tell us anything really, I don't think mechanically about the way it would work. And then lastly, here's the proposal, which will probably be a paragraph. And what I read to you today, theoretically amounts to a paragraph. So you're right, Jen, we may not get any more. And then the question is, we might not know exactly what the proposal is until we actually saw legislation. And that all assumes that we would actually see legislations from one of the tax writing committees, right? Yeah, that's right. If we see the legislation, how soon before consideration by the committees would it be released? Technically, 48 hours is everyone's bet. The requisite amount of time just to mark up a bill, but it's unclear, especially when you're dealing with proposals that increase revenue that can negatively affect stakeholders. Oftentimes, there's a desire on the Hill to hold those back until they're already included in the bill in order to prevent or stifle efforts to kill the provision. Yep. And who knows, will Richie Neal or Ron Wyden, the tax writers in the House and the Senate respectively, even include this proposal? Don't know. That's exactly. uh, Yeah, that's one of the things we'll be looking for throughout 2021 into the spring and I think into the summer and beyond potentially. So with that, that's all we have time for today. Thanks, Jen and Tom, for your insights. I hope this sheds at least some light on Biden's offshoring proposal. As we talk about the possibility of a forthcoming green book from the Biden Treasury, you might be asking, why didn't we get a green book during the Trump years? Well, I think each year was its own story. But let me talk about 2017, which was Trump's first year, just as 2021 is, of course, Biden's first year. Back in 2017, the Trump administration broke with longstanding policy by not issuing a green book with tax proposals. But there was arguably a reasonable justification for that. Congress was in the midst of debating and developing tax legislation that ultimately became the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. If you think about it, it could have been a distraction for the administration to drop its own proposal right into the middle of that process. But then if you further think about it, it's also more or less the same dynamic Biden might face later this year. As we talked about in the last episode, we think that it is very possible that by May, Congress will be deep in discussions around the recovery package, which it is anticipated will include both tax cuts and tax increases. Can Biden drop his own Green Book proposals into the middle of that process? Well, he can. I guess the question is, will he? As tax practitioners, I think we'd like to see a Green Book, if only to answer the many questions we've raised about the Biden tax plan. But were I still a Capitol Hill tax writer? I'm not so sure. If it's a Hill Treasury coordinated process, I suppose it could be constructive to congressional efforts. But if it's not, a Biden Green Book dropped into the middle of delicate negotiations could limit Congress's room to run in developing its own tax proposals. Definitely something for us all to keep our eyes on. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. And please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our email inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.